Hello, welcome back to the podcast series all about life at Chawton House with me, Lizzie Frisby. Based in the tiny village of Chawton in Hampshire is the once home to Edward Knight, brother of the world-famous writer best known for her novel Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. With so much going on all year round, I want to keep you informed of what is going on by chatting to curators, volunteers, gardeners, guest speakers and more. In today's episode, I chat to Cleo O'Sullivan, the curator of the 2020 Man Up exhibition here at Chawton House, as she gives us an exclusive tour. So I am here at Chawton House with the lovely Cleo O'Sullivan, who has put together the wonderful Man Up exhibition. Yeah, it's uh, the 2020 exhibition for Chawton House, and it's lasting from March 3rd all the way to December 30th. So it's only a few days into the exhibition so far, and you said that you're feeling quite relieved that it's finally all open, because I bet a lot of work has gone into the exhibition. Yeah, not to sound lame, but my heart and soul has gone into it. <laughs> it's the first... I've never curated an exhibition before, and I just wanted it to be as engaging and interesting as possible. Um, and, yeah, just justify the subjects, really, because the women I feature are just so cool, and they're forgotten by history, and I want to bring their stories to life, but in an interesting way, so that people don't just waft on by and then forget about them. I want people to remember them and maybe be inspired by them. Brilliant. Well, I have already ha- been donned a pirate hat. Tricorn. Yeah, tricorn hat. And a uh, sword. Uh, so, yeah, it's already very exciting for me. And hopefully you're going to give me a little nose around the exhibition now. I'd love to. I'd love to. So we're starting off in our first exhibition space. And the exhibition is kind of themed into different professions or male-dominated spheres. So the first room really looks at the more violent aspects of the exhibition. So it's themed into soldiering, pirating and duelling. And these women are manning up in a more literal sense. So they're kind of leaving their petticoats at home and putting on the breeches and setting off into the world. Um, Not necessarily pretending to be men, although some of them did, but just out of practicality really um so if we move over to the pirating section i feature the two most famous women pirates from england these are anne bonny and mary reed and there's some debate over whether they were actually pretending to be men but at the uh, transcript of their trials one woman claimed that um each of them had a machete and pistol in their hands and cursed and swore at the men to murder. Mm-hmm. And that the reason of her knowing and believing them to be women then was by the largeness of their breasts. <laughs> and they led on so nicely from soldiering. And I feature two women here who donned male clothes, actually did pretend to be men and joined the army. So wow. Marianne Talbot is one. and We've got a first edition of her account. And then Hannah Snell is the other one. And she had a very successful career, actually. And she, she, she originally donned male clothing because she was married to a Dutchman who absconded and abandoned her. So she took on her brother-in-law's name and identity and borrowed his clothes and went off to sea to find him. And then she finds herself in all these crazy adventures. She's in the Royal Navy and she receives several bullet wounds in the line of fire. And she claims that she was shot in the groin, but the ship's surgeon didn't know she was a woman, so she had to 
dig the the bullet out herself oh my yeah that's not very dignified no exactly (laughs) but um on display here is a pictures of well sketches of her in her regimentals performing her manual exercise as a soldier so basically when she got back to england she sought from the duke of cumberland a pension which she received and then it wasn't quite enough to live on so she made a career for herself reinvented herself as an actress on the stage she'd appear first in her women's clothes and then go get changed and people wouldn't recognize her in her soldier's gear and she just marched around and the crowd went wild for it they loved it and she was a real source of inspiration to women she must have been one of the first female actresses in the time surely if seeing as it used to be men dressing up as women all well the time. later on in the exhibition i do talk about women actresses so oh. stepping into a man's world so you Won't have that. <laughs> you're one step ahead of me but um so like i said i wanted to make the exhibition more interactive so i created this game and it's called Roll the dice to decide your fate. And it's inspired by what happened to these women here. Um, so, Lizzie, why don't you have a go? I would love to. Got a four. You are shot in the line of fire. The surgeon cannot remove all the shrapnel and you lose your leg to infection. Ooh, wow. that's not a good one. That doesn't sound great. No, not no. great. Well, it was tough being in the Navy in those days, so I'll roll it now. Maybe I'll fare better. <laughs> one. And you find glory in battle against the French. The crew commends your bravery in the face of danger. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Much better than my fate. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a tough old slog in those days. The next part of the exhibition is about duelling. So there were cases of real historical duels between women. One was called the Petticoat Duel, and it happened in 1792 in London. Fought between Lady Almira Braddock and Mrs Elphiston. Petticoat Duel, what a lovely name. (laughs) It's got a catchiness to it. So I start off in the beginning of the duelling bit. You could read books on the proper code of conduct with duelling. So talking about whether your duel is justifiable. This book here, this this book here is kind of where the whole exhibition started. It's called The History of Miss Betsy Warwick. And it's about, it's a chapbook, which is a a kind of like a penny book that people could buy in the 18th and 19th century. It's just really, really cheap. And they tended to have really fun adventure yarns. You know, it's like trash novels, basically. But this one (laughs) is brilliant and I love it. So Betsy Warwick is imprisoned against her will in a nunnery and she has a lover who helps her escape by lending her male clothing. However, she goes to meet her lover at the rendezvous point and she believes he has been killed in a duel. She's obviously devastated by this, but she decides it's too dangerous for her to move about the countryside in female clothes. So she stays in her men's clothes and just has loads of adventures, one of which is getting into a duel herself and killing the man she believes has killed her lover. And here at the bottom, it says, Men, some to business, some to pleasure take, but every woman is at heart a rake. And I just love that, this rakish rogue thing. And then the rest of the duelling section looks at the novel Belinda by Mariah Edgeworth. Mariah Edgeworth is like a contemporary of Jane Austen, but she's way more famous than Jane Austen. And Jane Austen is a huge fan of hers. I think she's oh. absolutely brilliant. Um, so it's just funny how Jane Austen's fame has managed to endure, but Mariah Edgeworth is really only known by 
people who love the 18th century. Mm. Um, but there's a character in Belinda called Harriet Freak. I mean, she's, <laughs> yeah, not much. She's, she's clearly coloured as the villain straight away. Like, yes. it was, <laughs> there's no imagination in that. And Passed out. Yeah, she's, she loves to play pranks on people and is so chaotic. <laughs> she's described as having no conscience, so she is always at ease and never more so than in male attire. And... Harriet Freak loves to dress in men's clothing because she's like, aren't my legs great? And sort of like shows them off. Whereas, of course, if she's in petticoats, they're hidden under voluminous bounds of fabric. That's very true. What would they have worn during, during dressing as men? What would they wear? Are we thinking pantaloons or... Breeches. Breeches and then stockings. So you can really see the calves. Very shapely is, Yeah, very shapely. She's just like, aren't my legs great? And basically, she gets her friend, the dazzling socialite Lady Delacour to have a duel cross-dressed with someone else. And in this duel of Lady Delacour's, the pistol literally backfires. And the whole secret of the novel is what happens to her. It's only revealed at the end, so sorry, spoiler alert. um, (laughs) Sorry about that. But um, Lady Delacour is hiding this terrible secret. She thinks she's got this cancerous growth, but actually it's just a wound from her uh, misfired pistol. And it's it's kind of... uh, Mariah Edgeworth is commenting on the fact that their masculine behaviour has caused them to misbehave and therefore be poor women, whatever. I mean, it's supposed to be a moral tale, but you're kind of like, Harriet Freak is so cool. So either yeah. either you wanted me to think she's cool or I haven't learned a lesson. <laughs> so, <laughs> either or. Either or, yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool to me. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. So that's our first room of the exhibition. What's next? So the next room is looking at women manning up, but in a more metaphorical sense so these aren't necessarily women pretending to be men or dressing as men but they're entering into a man's world basically so we start off with Elizabeth Knight in the landowning section so Elizabeth Knight was the only female proprietor of Chawton House she's sort of the only female squire and what's unusual about her not only that she's incredibly rich and powerful which for a woman of the 18th century was unheard of um, because only one-tenth of the land was owned by women in England at the time, which oh is fairly small. Yeah. But what's, what's different about Elizabeth Knight is that she seems to really relish being a landowner. Um, she's not sort of saying, oh, I'm doing this um, so that my son can inherit. Not that she has kids, but that's quite a common thing for female landowners to do. Or she's sort of saying, oh, yes, this is what my husband or father or brother would have wanted. Would have she's wanted, yeah. doing it herself and absolutely loving it. So on display, we've got a letter of hers and she's writing to her steward and there's been a bit of windfall and a load of wood has sort of been up for dispute, basically. And so she says in her letter, I would have you go immediately to Chawton, cut the wood down and carry it off the ground that belongs to Farmer Pryor's farm. And if he opposes it, let it be at his peril. Which is just so cool. Um, Good for her. Yeah, exactly. And she's only about 24 when she's writing this. Wow. Yeah. She has a good backbone. She is not to be crossed or met with. Um, And I I mean, she's a few generations above Jane Austen. um, But Jane Austen came to Chawton House quite a lot when she was living in the cottage down the road. Elizabeth Knight's portrait would have hung up. So she would have seen it. And... It's hard to say how much you would have known about her, but I think it's really telling that in Jane Austen's novels, there's always some 
boss matriarch who's really rich, has control of her own finances and is basically telling everyone what to do. And I sort of think, is she a forerunner of Lady Catherine de Bourgh and Lady Denham from Sanditon um, and Mrs Mm. Ferris? She must have been some inspiration. I think so, yeah, because where else would Jane Austen have sort of got the idea? Well, yeah. yeah. And also on display of Elizabeth Knight's is her draft marriage settlement. So Elizabeth Knight got married twice, first to her cousin, William Woodward, and then next to... is less weird in those days to get married to your cousin. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, next to a man called Bulstrode Peachy. Um, interesting what name. name. <laughs> I know, he looks at a baby and it's like, yes, he shall be Bulstrode. Um, but the interesting thing about both her husbands is they had to take her surname, which is, obviously... Oh, yeah. very unheard of. Yeah, although it's, it's less of a big deal in the 18th century. Um, oh, really? Yeah, you kind of just take whoever's got the better name really you're not precious about your surname at all um but in her marriage her draft contract which she's drawn up herself because you can see the writing matches her letter she is really protecting her assets because in the 18th century under coverture a woman's legal identity is absorbed into that of her husband so everything she has is owned by her husband and so she's seeking ways to protect herself so in the draft marriage settlement it says you have to take my surname fine and also, he'll own all of her land immediately, but she's putting it in her draft marriage contract that all the rents from the land, so the money that it generates, has to come to me. So, mm. And he, he has to agree to it, and he does. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Yeah. I love that she's from this tiny village of Chawton, and we had a woman standing up for herself and absolutely showing she, the way it should be. <laughs> exactly. She had a few estates, actually. So when mm. she's going to various estates nearby, every time she arrives in Shorten, she demanded that the church bells be rung to herald her coming back. So she she was a bit full of herself, but fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I admire that. <laughs> um, so you asked about actresses. I did indeed. Well, our next section is on acting, and you're quite right. Until the mid-1600s, women weren't allowed on the stage. So this is sort of getting to 100 years later, but still it's relatively new. Mm. Um, but what's quite popular in the 18th century, because they're big into their masquerade and who's pretending to be who, um, they really like it when women take on what's known as breaches roles. So if you think of Twelfth Night, uh, Shakespeare's com- comedy play, Viola dresses up as a man for yes. a lot of it. So these are the Georgians absolutely love seeing women dressed up as men. And this actress who we feature is called... Charlotte Chark, and she is famous because she's got a famous father. Her father's kind of one of the greatest comic actors of his day, and he runs Drury Lane Theatre, which is the biggest theatre. And there's a there's a facsimile print here of Drury Lane, and it can fit sort of three thousand six hundred people, which is massive in those yeah. times. So she's performing to numbers of that size, um, but she's sort of very spirited and independent. She takes on the British roles, absolutely loves them. And she breaks away from her father, joins the theatre troupe of his bitter rival, and he sort of disowns her. So then she starts her own theatre company and is the first woman to ever manage a theatre by herself. So Wow. Yeah, and she, she actually did live as a man occasionally, and she appeared as Mr Brown in a very genteel manner, and she has a very coloured and chequered life. She's sort of going about, she is a valet to a lord at one point, she's... She owns a pub, and then she's a tavern owner, sausage maker. 
And then next, we talk about ballooning. Ballooning. Now, you have mentioned this to me a little bit before, and I'm very excited for the listeners to hear about this. It's, <laughs> it's quite a fun story with it, isn't it? Yeah. So, to give you context, um, in the 1780s, the Montgolfiers in France set the first balloon into the sky. So, man has been talking about flying for millennia, but this is the first time it actually happens. And this sets off this huge craze. So... But in England, obviously, the English don't want the French to get too far ahead of them. So they're equally <laughs> trying to get balloons up into the air. And it's in 1785 um, that they decide they want, they want women to sort of be part of the vanguard of ballooning as well, which they are. And on display here are really stunning French lithographs of fashion plates. And it shows how ballooning was so popular. So it's kind of included in their skirts and pantaloons. I was going to say, is that a balloon in her skirt? Yes. Two massive balloons. Yes, and her hair as well. (laughs) Would she not fly away? Well, (laughs) be quite the spectacle. (laughs) And next to it is a swatch of a chintz fabric, and it shows a balloon in flight. And it's, it's kind of showing that people were decorating their houses in the latest ballooning craze. So wow. But back to 1785, there's um, a man called Vincenzo Lunardi, who is an Italian, and he is the first man to fly in England, and he kind of wants to raise the stakes, so he's going to be the first guy to have a woman fly into the oh sky. <laughs> and they try on May 13th, but it fails because... The balloon is too heavy and it won't set off. And in her memoir, so the woman who wants to be the first woman to fly, she's a West End actress, and she writes a memoir about this whole adventure. And she makes reference to the fact that 200 pounds of human weight stop the flight from happening. And, I mean, she doesn't mention that that's actually what she weighs. <laughs> so it's, it's purely down to her that they don't fly. Um, and she, she gets nervous because she wants to be the person, first person to fly. And in June, she's nearly beaten by a Miss Grice. However, Miss Grice, and we've got a lithograph of her having to get out of the balloon. The balloon then is too heavy. Miss Grice is fair and walks out. She's like, okay, fair enough, I can't do it. So, Letitia Ann Sage is determined to be the first woman to fly. She wants to be the star of the show. She does. She wants to make her name. So, in June, they set off again, and again, the balloon is too heavy, and everyone's looking at each other like, "Mm, she should probably get out. She abjectly refuses to. She says, no, I'm going to be the person to do it. So, Vincenzo Vincenzo Lunardi, the pilot, the guy whose balloon it is, has to get out, because the other guy is his financial (laughs) backer, who he absolutely has to keep in. So, two people are about to fly. And with no pilot? With no pilot, yeah. <laughs> insane. But they have to do it. The crowd, the Jordan crowd's going mad. They're expecting a balloon to go up. They pay to see a balloon and it's been an hour and nothing's happening. But in all the chaos, the balloon finally ascends. However, some lacing in the basket has come undone. So Biggin, who is the financial backer, says to Letitia Sage, would you mind bending down and doing up the lacing? Which she does. She gets on all fours ties up the lacing. It's a bit unsteady, so he steadies her by putting his hand on her shoulder. Now, the Georgian crowd (laughs) sees an actress on all fours, quite a young, handsome man holding her shoulders from behind, and they come to the conclusion that 
this is the first ever entry into the Mile High Club. Fantastic. I absolutely love that story. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate, yes. Yeah, and wow. yeah, so you had, she's kind of gone down in history for that, unfortunately. However, I like to focus on the fact that she has written an account of her time in the sky and it remains the fullest and earliest account from a lady aeronaut. But you Fantastic. can see how the press lampooned her because the last thing on display is a satirical print of... Her skirt's up blown. Oh, trust the media and... Classic, <laughs> nothing changes. There's no privacy in this world. No. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that story. <laughs> and now, oh, some fun dressing up here. Yeah, well, we've I mean, already got our tricorns on. We have indeed. Dashing. I've got my sword, so I don't think I have room for more coats and that. Yeah, and sort of Darcy shirts. And writing. Yes, so... We've talked about all these various professions, um, and especially poor Letitia Ann Sage was sort of judged and mocked for her femininity, etc. the fact that she was a woman. So we talked about writing, and I begin with Mary Wollstonecraft, who's kind of been lauded now as the first feminist. Um, and at the time of the 18th century, she is a political writer, um, she's very pro the French Revolution and its ideals of liberty. Mm. Uh, and she writes a tract called Vindication of the Rights of Men. So people are more familiar with her Vindication of the Rights of Women, which comes later, and that's talking about female education and how women should be given basic human rights, you know, crazy stuff like that. <laughs> um, but the Vindication of the Rights of Men is written in response to Edmund Burke, who writes this quite flowery, highfalutin um criticism of the revolutionaries in France and sort of says they shouldn't be treating Marie Antoinette so terribly, blah, blah, blah. But he really, really writes in such a romantic way. And she publishes this tract and sort of calls them out and says, you're being ridiculous. Like They were sort of despotic reign that needed to end, etc. And when she's, it's published, her vindication, it's published anonymously. And everyone thinks it's brilliant. It sells out within three weeks. All the main sort of writers of the day review it and say it's excellent mm. and then for the second edition she puts her name to it and that's when people are kind of like oh hang on a second they stop reading her work as a man they start commenting on her gender and say oh god you're too passionate in your in your ideas <laughs> too much emotion too yeah too emotion you need to calm down dear etc um and also on display here is some of them um, a collection of Horace Walpole's letters. Horace Walpole's son of the first prime minister and he's a political and satirical commenter on the day. Mm. He's the guy who creates Strawberry Hill House in um, Twickenham. But he calls her a hyena in petticoats. So it's a real attack on her femininity yeah. and stuff. And I wanted to start with her and just show the danger of a woman putting her name to a publication because you're yeah. really opening yourself up to criticism not just for the work but just the audacity of being a woman mm. and writing and that's where we lead on to Jane Austen we've got on display a second edition of Sense and Sensibility and Jane Austen famously wrote her work by a lady so she's being anonymous but she's deliberately choosing to be acknowledged as a woman, a woman. but by the time Sense and Sensibility the second edition has come out she's not putting by a lady she's putting by the author of Pride and Prejudice. So she's trading on her own fame and success, mm -hmm. but still choosing to not open herself up personally for right. the criticism. Much like 
And then that segue onto <laughs> the Brontes. Of course. So the Brontes famously published under the names of Cura Acton Ellis Bell. Mm-hmm. So these are names that aren't male names. They're androgynous pseudonyms, although a lot of people assumed that they were men because, you know, patriarchy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but th- they wanted to deliberately leave their gender behind. They wanted the work to be judged on its merit alone. Yes. And which is fair enough because when Jane Eyre especially first came out, it was criticised. I mean, it was praised, praised and lauded across the world. We've got on display French and American editions. So it shows how far this, her success went. But it's, it's criticised as being really coarse and unchristian and violent and one reviewer, because people are constantly speculating on who the bells are. If it, is it one person? Is it men? Um, and one reviewer said, if we, abs- if we ascribe the book to a woman at all, we have no alternative but to ascribe it to one who has, for some sufficient reason, long forfeited the society of her own sex. So mm. sort of saying, there's no way a woman could have written this. And if it is a woman, then they've never met a woman because they, <laughs> they have... cannot be exactly. a woman in any way. There's no <laughs> chance. So on display is um, the edition of Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey, which has the first biographical notice of Ellis and Acton Bell. It's written by Charlotte. So it was really Emily Bronte who was the most anti-people knowing who they were. Mm. Um, and after her sisters die, she writes this biographical notice. People kind of know who Charlotte Bronte is in literary circles in London, but it's not widely known. And she releases this, and it's the first official time they say, yep, we're, we were three sisters and we all wrote in this community together, um, which is really, really lovely. And that's why the next item we have, which... I, is probably my favourite thing we've got on display. We're borrowing it from the Bronte Parsonage, and it's absolutely stunning. It's this tiny, tiny page taken from Emily Bronte's diary. Oh. You can see how small her handwriting it's is. A tiny handwriting. Mm. <laughs> and there, it's a sketch of Emily and Anne at the table writing. And even though it's just an ink doodle, I find it so evocative of that writerly community that the three sisters were in. doing it together yeah rather than alone exactly you can see how close they are bent over their work also you can just see the voluminous victorian gowns depicted (laughs) in it no so i absolutely love it and the other item we are borrowing very kindly from the bronte parsonage is a letter written by charlotte bronte to her publisher george smith and she refers to Curabelle in the second person. He obviously knows who she is, but she says, As to Curabelle, instead of writing, he has for the past three weeks been amusing himself with seeing the doctor and swallowing drugs. So she's, she's, um, she's unwell and she's sort of saying, Oh, don't ask me for my next book. I'm ill. Leave me alone. Well, busy, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we end on a letter written to Charlotte this time, and it's by Robert Southey, who was the Poet Laureate of the day. Oh. So to give you some context, he's part of the Romantic Poets, so he's pals with the likes of Wordsworth and Coleridge. Um, he's sort of the same ilk as, yeah, Keats and Shelley. And when Charlotte's a young woman, she writes to him and sends a bunch of her poems and kind of says what do you think, essentially. And as you can see, it's, he sends a very long letter back, which was good of him to do. Um, he says, though, in the letter, I assume you're using a fake name, because I've never heard of any Bronte. And she's <laughs> like, no, it's my real name. Um, but I don't know, maybe she gets the idea of 
fake name. Hey, no, I don't know that's true. <laughs> that is pure speculation. Um, but he says to her, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not to be. The more she's engaged in her proper duties, the less leisure she will have for it. So he's really saying, you shouldn't be writing. Of course, because you're a woman. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I do like to end on this because... I mean, had you, no judgment, had you heard of Robert Southey before? I, I, just I had not, no. Exactly, but you'd heard of the Brontes. Of course, I'd heard so of the Brontes. So, how wrong he was, yes. how wrong he was. I love how he'd spent so much time writing such a long letter as well, just to try and patronise them. Yeah. And then, yeah, as you say, I, I hadn't heard of him before this. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, it's, it's funny how fame is a fickle thing. Mm. And then, if you wanted, you could create your own nom de plume oh. just like the Brontes androgynous so it's a bit Ooh, nonsensical let's see fantastic so I have to get first first name initial so for me that is Lote <laughs> right month on the April Lote Ham I put them together yeah right? and it was surname initial Freck Freak. Freak. Huh? Freak. Oh, freak. okay. I'm, I'm the freak. You are. I like that side, eh? <laughs> Lotham Freak. Where are you? Fantastic. Watch <laughs> out for your bestseller as Lotham Freak. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. That will be coming very soon, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'm back here with the lovely Cleo after a wonderful tour of her Man Up exhibition. Tell me though, what was it that inspired you to do this exhibition? Short answer is, I just, I love dressing up and I was just like, that's wicked that they did that for real. But long answer um, is there are these incredible women dotted throughout history that have been left behind or forgotten. And the whole point of any exhibition is to shine a light on a particular story in a new way. And that's just what I wanted to do. It was these really badass women just not being constrained by gender expectations and they they had to do it to probably survive really a lot of them like a lot of the women in the first room are dressing up for practical reasons mm -hmm. just because moving about in 18th century society without the protection of a man or without any sort of chaperone is incredibly dangerous like you would not be able to walk down the street without people looking at you and being like, well, where's her man? Yeah. But if you, if you put on breeches, you gain this element of invisibility and protection. And that's really, I just found that whole concept really, really fascinating. Mm. So um, the, the whys of them doing it, but also how they got on really. Part of me is like, how do they get away with it? Yeah, how do you get away with dressing up as a man for so long? Like maybe for a little show, an hour long, or one, a few scenes, but literally living your life. Yeah, well, I talk about it in the exhibition, um, Hannah Snell, she was part of the Royal Navy. She was on board a ship and I was just like, close quarters, there's nowhere to hide. How did she get away with it? <laughs> And I was doing, in the course of my research, I found this story. Uh, apparently, her ship was kind of stuck in the doldrums and they were all uh, rationed to a pint of water a day. So a tiny amount for 11 weeks. And the way she would go to the loo is sort of 
kind of like an 18th century version of a shiwi. She uses like leather hide thing. And I yeah. thought to myself, maybe that helped <laughs> sort of subterfuge of like barely going to the loo. So, oh gosh. I know. All these practicalities that don't even cross your mind when you're first thinking about dressing up. <laughs> yeah, them. exactly. Goodness. Um, it's amazing how many different women did have to dress up as men and it's not just these most obvious ones for actresses or whatever it is like the writers as you say which have obviously gone on to shape literature as we know it yeah Yeah. and I mean so one of the writers who I didn't talk about in the exhibition but we have her portrait hanging up is Georges Sand who is a French actor sorry a French writer who at the time of her writing in the 1840s is more popular than Victor Hugo in her day and Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera so he's like incredibly <laughs> famous and wow. and she sort of slipped slipped into not obscurity but it's, there's only a certain set of people who know her but she did dress up as a man um she had aristocratic uh parentage and she says she dresses up as a man because she's just like it's too expensive to wear all these skirts so I'm not <laughs> going to do it um, but in in France at the time if you were a woman and wanted to wear men's clothes, you had to have a permit to do it. Why? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. But she refused to get a permit. She just did it anyway. And critically, George Sand smoked in public as well, which like a woman just did not do. Oh, and her characters are always quite androgynous and um, they, they deal with their various uh, ups and downs, trials and tribulations. Um, and she uses the name Georges Sand and although she dresses in men's clothes she's also not really pretending to be a man the way that Hannah Snell is doing um she's doing it for practical reasons but George George to us is a male name but in French the French version of Georges has an s on the end of it so Mm. she's spelling it without the s so to a French audience they're not seeing a male name they're kind of seeing an English name or it's kind of an androgynous name so it's very unknown or sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's so many layers to it. And and yeah, like the Brontes certainly aren't dressing up as men either. Um, and neither is Mary Wollstonecraft, um, although she is described as a hyena in petticoats, which is quite this masculine <laughs> image, like this aggressive woman. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's sort of, part of it is about women pretending to be men and part of it is about women getting on in a man's world, yeah. basically, and yes. having to do it in these varieties of ways yeah in order to just get on with everything yeah, yeah. to survive and also thrive like, like some of them have incredible success as a yeah. result of it so without having the baggage of being a woman basically because mm. they just hide it they disguise it yeah and do you feel i guess you probably do you feel that these women have allowed society to progress as it has into a more equal society to which we which we all aspire to today you know when you're researching these things you're like oh my god they had it so much worse jeez um but i think they're they're still an incredible source of inspiration certainly mary wollstonecraft to the feminist movement has been really really vital Mm. and after she dies um she almost falls into obscurity because her grief-stricken husband william godwin who's also a political writer as well um, he publishes a memoir of her life. Um, and he thinks he's being really fair and honest because they believed in this free living lifestyle. Um, but people are aghast at how she lived. She has a child out of wedlock. She 
lives with a man who was in her husband for years and years. She attempts suicide several times, which is incredibly unchristian. So she is really, her reputation is ruined. And it's only when she's reclaimed by feminists in sort of the late 20th century that we really, she finds her voice in society yeah. again. But like now, yeah, her words are so important. And I think all of these women's words are so important. Mm-hmm. And the ones that have been nearly forgotten, we want to bring back into bring the light. Bring back, yeah, yeah, definitely. So who would your favourite woman be from the exhibition? I mean, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I know who I should say, <laughs> but the one who I relate to the most, <laughs> I feel I am a bit of a Letitia and Sage, like a bit of a clumsy klutz. <laughs> she is up in the balloon and... <laughs> At this point, Georgian society kind of, they love ballooning, but they find the whole endeavour really ridiculous. They're just like, what are you doing up there? So the people who are doing it, yeah, they're trying to justify it as a scientific endeavour. They sort of say, no, but when we're up in the atmosphere, we have no idea how humans can take going up there. So we're on the forefront of scientific endeavour and experimentation. So... They always bring a load of scientific instruments up with mm. them uh, to 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 give the whole illusion. Yeah, give <laughs> give it uh, credence, really. And yeah. I think the aeronauts are genuinely interested because the first balloon that goes up in the air, they they send animals, not humans, because they're mm. like, well, what if we die up there? So yeah. this is crazy. Um, but unfortunately, Letitia Anse, she's obviously, as I've said, she's quite a a buxom woman. She's quite heavy um and she's a bit of a clumsy klutz um and in the chaos of the balloon ascending she steps on the barometer and breaks it so they can't even (laughs) and she so she smashes it and so they can't even do any scientific experiments when they're up there so the whole the whole (laughs) scheme is just completely lampooned in the press and i was just like oh god do that as well I wouldn't want to but I would I would just <laughs> it might just yeah <laughs> exactly so I was just like but she writes a really and I wrote her, her read her memoir and it's really really brilliant and she's really courageous as well because when the first uh balloon doesn't go up people think it's because she's too scared and she stops it and she's furious she's spitting rage at this she's mm. like how dare people say that I really really wanted to go and that's why she's so determined to not move the second yeah. time even though she absolutely should but she doesn't. She said, yeah. no, here I'm staying. I am going to go up. I'm going to be the first English woman to go into the air. And so she is. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, good for her. I love Letitia myself, actually. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and yes, if you haven't heard of this exhibition already, well, now you have, I hope. So make sure you do come on down to Chawton. And you might even see Cleo here as well if you have more questions. You might just look out for the girl in the tricorn. Tricorn. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Cleo. It's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you. A huge thank you once again to Cleo O'Sullivan. You can check out the online version of the Man Up exhibition available now on the Chawton House website. Or once the house is reopened, we look forward to welcoming you to the exhibition in person. Do stay tuned for further episodes of the Chawton House podcast for more tales old and new and to keep updated on what's going on. In the meantime, why not follow Chawton House on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter? And finally, thank you for this music. This is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square, found on ccmixter.org.